and uh, encourage you to open up to our scripture passage today. We're looking at Luke chapter 4, uh, 31 through 44. Luke uh, 4, 31 through 44. Well, Luke chapter 4, starting verse 31. Uh, then he, it being Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet. Jesus said sternly, Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words are these? With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would uh, speak your word to us, Lord. As we see here, your word is powerful. And Lord, you know every person here. You know their diseases. You know the things that torment them. You know their sins. You know their baggage. And Lord, we ask that your word, through the power of your spirit, would work today in this moment to begin to heal us, restore us, make us as you intended us to be. Father, I can't do this. We can't do that. We need your word to heal us. We pray that it would do that here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but it seems like lately the most popular online videos uh, that I see and my kids see, and probably many of you have seen, are these you know, three to 13 second uh, short videos. YouTube calls them shorts, and you can just you know, scroll through an endless supply of them. Facebook calls them reels, I think. And if you've ever watched them, a lot of these videos are you know, some sort of tagline uh, you know, that has some outlandish claim and says, you won't believe what happened. And then you watch the video and it's usually kind of underwhelming. Uh, but so it's addictive too. So you want to watch the next one and the next one. Uh, there's also, at least I seem to get, a lot of videos that are life advice or some sort of advice videos. Here are some that I saw recently. Uh, Stop chasing money, chase wealth. Five ways landlords get rich off one rental property. How I transformed my body in six months. Don't start your workout before this, dot, dot, dot. Everybody on YouTube seems to have 
advice, and they are able to package life-transforming advice into an eight-second video, right? And it's like, why have we been reading books all this time with hundreds of pages when all you need is eight seconds to learn how to get that body you've always dreamed of? But I wonder you know, if we were to spend 24 hours with the people making these videos, if their real life actually matched what they packaged into that short video clip. It wouldn't surprise me at all if you know, a third of these videos are actually made in you know, the equivalent of, equivalent of like digital sweatshops where people are just ripping off, copying other videos and adding some voiceover and then you know, posting hundreds of them online and they're all fake. Uh, probably the others, I would guess that those 13 seconds you see on YouTube or Instagram or wherever it is wouldn't match the other 86,387 seconds of the day. There would be a big gap. Right? Everyone on YouTube has a eight-second solution to your problem. But if any of them actually worked, there wouldn't be thousands of these videos being pushed out every day, often with conflicting advice. Right? Anyone can give you advice. Anyone can tell you what you need to do to change your life or to fix your life. But few people can actually come through on those promises. And that's what strikes me about Jesus in our passage today. Over and over, maybe you saw it, the people that encounter Jesus, they say, he speaks with authority. I would guess that Jesus, you know, if he lived in our day, he would have made, or at least would have been part of, as people recorded his work, some viral videos. You can imagine the headlines, how to turn water into wine in five seconds. <laughs> He's compelling. But what we see, contrary to so many others today, is that he can actually back up his words with the equivalent action. His words bring change in people's life. We're in a series through the Gospel of Luke called The King Has Come. And what we see is that Jesus is a king that can actually bring real change and heal his people. Right? He's unlike so many politicians that promise everything but do very little. Jesus actually brings change and is building a kingdom that is in line with God's priorities. And so this is what I want you to remember this morning, that his words, Jesus' words, his words will heal you. His words will heal you. And I just want us to walk through the passage and then at the end draw out a few applications for us. So we're still near the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He had, right before this, uh, maybe the week before or so, he had just preached in his hometown of Nazareth, uh, which uh, Luis preached on two weeks ago. And if you remember that, the people were amazed at his teaching, but they quickly turned on him and sought to throw him off a cliff. And Jesus miraculously escapes. But despite kind of that quick turn for his you know, reaction to his first sermon, he continues to preach, but in different places. So he heads to Capernaum, a town that is northeast of Nazareth, right on the Sea of Galilee. And there he teaches again at the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, just a, a few comments of some things that we're going to see more and more through the Gospels. Uh, the synagogue, uh, maybe you're familiar with it, maybe not. Uh, it, it is something that emerged in that time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, uh, Israelites' worship really centered around traveling to the temple. And the worship took place in this one place at the temple. 
But then if you remember your Old Testament history, God's people ended up getting exiled. A number of them were carted off to Babylon. Others kind of scattered throughout the Mediterranean region. And what do you do for worship when you can't go to the one place where you would worship, the temple? It was either destroyed or it was, you know, many weeks journey away from where you were. And it was during that time that the synagogues likely emerged. So if you had uh, 10 Jewish uh, families uh, living in an area, they could form a synagogue. And they would gather there every Sabbath, which was Saturday for them, to worship. And this worship included times of various prayers, a few different readings from the Bible, from Scripture, the Old Testament for them. There was usually a sermon on one of the main passages that was read, and the service ended with a benediction. You'll notice that this worship service that the Jews participated in 2,000 plus years ago has very many similarities to our worship service. And it's a good reminder that how we worship today isn't something that we just made up. Or it's not just what we think would be most attractive to people today. But we are standing in a stream of believers who have worshipped in similar ways for thousands of years. Right now, in different cultures, some of the details will be different. The language would obviously be different. The style of music would be different. But those basic building blocks of worship being centered around God's Word has remained constant for many, many centuries. And that should actually be a comfort for you. Because one of the things that means is when you stand here and worship, right, you're worshiping in a way and doing something that Christians have done for thousands of years. And that God that they worshiped 2,000 years ago when they gathered into the synagogue, that God was faithful to them, and now they behold him face to face. And you too are worshiping that very same God who will be faithful to you. This isn't a new religion. This is not something we made up. You are standing in a long stream of believers. And the second thing I want you to notice here, and it'll pop out if you pay attention to it over and over, that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue to worship each week. Now, sometimes people will pit Jesus against the church. They say, oh, I love Jesus, but I can't stand being in a church, or I don't need to be part of the church. But Jesus wouldn't actually agree with that. Why did Jesus, do we see in the Gospels, his practice was to every week go to the synagogue, a building, a place, to worship with people. And if anyone had an excuse not to do it, Jesus did, right? He was, well, I'm God. I don't need to go to a place. And yet he would participate in worship. Jesus certainly upended a lot of the religious traditions of that day, but he didn't upend the importance of gathering with other believers to worship. So if Jesus thought it was important to show up to worship with others, how much more so should we today? Now Jesus is preaching at the synagogue in Capernaum, and the people are amazed. He's compelling. His words have authority. And I'm sure you may have known some people like this, right? There's something about how they speak it, it grasps your attention. You hang on every word. Everything they say kind of, you know, uh, creates sparks in your brain as, as you hear them speaking. But Jesus is finishing this sermon that everyone thinks is amazing. Wow, he's such a good speaker. He speaks with authority. But then is, the service is interrupted with this heckler. Right? Someone from the back cries out, go away. 
What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And here Jesus faces a test. He's just spoken really well. People want to listen to him. But what does he do with a heckler? What does he do with someone who's challenging that authority? Can he back up his authority with action? Or does he look good as long as no one actually talks to him and no one interrupts him or no one gives him feedback? And Jesus here backs up his authority. How? And this heckler isn't just a grumpy old man. He's possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He's not someone you can reason with or bargain with, say, hey, can you just be quiet to the end? No, he is possessed. He doesn't know common courtesy. He's going to threaten to steal the entire show. And what does Jesus do? Well, he talks back to him. He says, be quiet. Come out of him. And then the text tells us, the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. And now everyone is even more amazed what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. Now notice, how do, when Jesus responds, right, he doesn't roll up his sleeves and clench his fists and say, just a minute, guys, let me take care of this. His words are powerful. He doesn't have to lift a single finger. And he does it in such a way that the demon comes out of the man violently, he throws him to the ground, and yet the man isn't hurt. He's like a master surgeon who knows exactly how to cut with his words to transform and heal this man. Jesus knows how to wield his words. You all know that kid's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we tell that to our kids when they feel bad, but we all know that's not actually true. Words can hurt. Words have an incredible power to stay with you for good or for bad, right? Some of you are still nursing wounds from words that were said years ago. Maybe you feel weak or silly about it. Why does this thing still hurt me so much? Why do those words still stick with me? But you shouldn't be surprised. Words have power for good or for bad. And what we see here in our passage is the incredible power of Jesus' words to heal. How is Jesus redeeming the world with words? How is he fighting the powers of evil, the demonic spirits that have come to oppose him with words? We're going to come back to this here in a minute. Just again, a note on demon possession, because we'll see more of it as we work through the gospel. Luke, if you remember, he was a physician, and he distinguishes demon possession from one other sicknesses, but also even other mental illnesses, or what we would call mental illnesses. And this is something that seems to be unique, right? Demon possession appears, is actually fairly rare in all of Scripture, except when Jesus was here. In the Old Testament, for instance, a time where we see many miraculous things in those couple thousand of years that it covers, you know what we really don't see any of? Demon possession. There's only two places in the entire Old Testament where it's briefly noted. In the New Testament, it's very common in the Gospels. We see a little bit of it in Acts, but soon after it quickly fades and we don't hear of it again. And so demon possession is a unique and rare event in history, it seems. 
and it showed up just when Jesus was here primarily. And why is that? Well, I think it's for the same reason that Satan showed up back in chapter 3 of Luke. Jesus is the key player, the key individual in God's plan to redeem the world, to save his people. And so if he can derail Jesus, the rest of the plan will fall down. It will fail. So Satan shows up and he throws all of the demonic forces that he has in order to knock Jesus down. And it's why during Jesus' ministry, we see this abundance of supernatural activity. This is the central battle. Now next, Jesus goes to the home of Simon. And it's easy to miss this, but this is likely the home of Simon Peter, the most famous disciple, Peter, that we'll see later on. But this is before Peter was called as a disciple. Maybe this is his first interaction with Jesus. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And again, we get a little detail of Luke's medical background where he classifies it as a high fever. And we know from medical records back in that day, there were two categories of fever. There was a normal fever and a high fever. So what this woman has is something more than just a 24-hour cold. And what does Jesus do when he sees her? Verse 39, he bends over and he rebukes the fever. He does what... He doesn't do anything that a medical professional today would do. He doesn't go run some more tests. He doesn't check her lab results. He doesn't give her a cold towel and a couple Tylenol. No, he talks to the sickness. I mean, imagine if you went, you know, had your doctor's appointment uh, and you're telling him about the sickness you've been struggling with and, and the doctor says, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he gets really close to you and he starts talking and you realize he's not talking to you, but actually to the disease. Right? He's saying, all right, little disease, time to get out. Party's over. Right? You wonder, what kind of doctor is this? But Jesus, again, uses words to make changes. And Jesus' words are more effective than any medicine. The fever listens. You know, we've been dealing with our allergies this season all wrong. No more medicine. Just talk to them, right? Tell them to get out. You're, you're over it. And notice how fast her recovery is. She doesn't need 24 hours, a good night's sleep. She doesn't even need a, thir- a few minutes. Verse 39 says, she got up at once and began to serve them. Jesus' words are so powerful that this woman, who was deathly ill at one moment, doesn't even need a few minutes to recover after she meets the great physician. Instead, she goes right back to work. You know, someone's saying, wow, I'd actually rather take my Tylenol and, you know, milk the sickness because I don't want to have to go right back to work after I'm sick. And word travels fast about this up-and-comer named Jesus. Jesus goes viral over the weekend. Verse 40 tells us that by night, people from all over the region are coming to him with sicknesses, demon possessions, and they come and they're healed. And the crowds start lining up. Jesus could be there all night, and we don't know how long he stayed, but perhaps he even stayed all night caring for these people, because verse 42 then tells us, at daybreak, Jesus went out to be alone. He's human. He needs rest. He gets tired. But the people still have needs. They haven't had enough. There's still huge lines of these people that are sick and have infirmities. But Jesus turns them away. He's going to leave perhaps even more people sick in the town than he healed. 
And why? He tells us at the end of the passage, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And I think about that for a moment. When you first read that statement, I must proclaim the kingdom of God to other towns, you think Jesus is referring to his preaching, his teaching, and certainly it does include that, but I think with the context of our passage and how Luke, the author, presents it as Jesus' ministry both to heal and to preach is very word-centric. He, he's speaking about this holistic ministry of healing people and proclaiming what those healings mean, what the kingdom of God looks like. What it, well, what does the kingdom of God look like? It's what he preached in that previous passage Luis showed us, where he says in that first sermon in Nazareth, he quotes from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus is saying, my job is to go from town to town to proclaim a better world is coming. Where all the sad things that you deal with are untrue. And as he's proclaiming that kingdom that is coming, he is showing people what that kingdom looks like through his words. Both the words to describe it, but his words that then create like this bubble of healing around him. A place where people are no longer tormented by demons. A place where people are no longer sick and have their lives cut short. A place where the poor are no longer scrambling to pay their rent. A place where those who have been imprisoned go free. Those who are blind will see. Blessing upon blessing will cover the earth. And his job, Jesus is saying, is to go from town to town and to show and to say through my words what this beautiful kingdom looks like. Right? It's like Jesus has this fragrance that just exudes from him that when you come close to him, you can close your eyes and you smell it and it transports you to this beautiful world where everything is right. And Jesus is saying, that's why I've come, to tell you that world is coming. The, these people that you've seen tormented by demons walk away healed. Those suffering from illnesses that doctors cannot cure get out of bed and start helping clear the dishes with pep in their step. Those crushed by debt and setback after setback walk away free. And that is why Jesus came. What does that mean for us then? I just, in my own Bible reading, finished reading through Isaiah, and it had been a while since I'd read the last part of it. I forgot how beautifully Isaiah ends. At the end of chapter 65, it describes this world where God says, look, I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, and no one will ever think about the old ones again. I look forward to that day, don't you? We don't even remember the pains. We think about them that we've suffered here. And look, he says, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy, and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they've lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at a hundred. My people will not work in vain. 
and their children will not be doomed to misfortune. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. And Jesus came to go around from town to town to say, that day is closer than you realize. In fact, if we take his word seriously from chapter 421, where Jesus says, this scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled today. And that brings us to this tension we all face. Well, how has it been fulfilled? Because I still hurt. I'm still sick. I'm not even close to 100 and I feel old. I've had miscarriages. My body's breaking down. I struggle to pay the bills. Jesus, how has this day come? I want you to imagine with me, if you were living back in Jesus' time and and you were in Capernaum and you were in line to be healed and the person before you was blind and Jesus speaks and you watch this man's face light up as he sees for the first time and the joy of all these colors and sights that he's never experienced. And now it's your turn. You're shaking with anticipation. You can't believe it. You're going to have this illness fixed, healed. But then Jesus says, time to go. I've got to proclaim the good news in other towns as well. And the people are like, no, no, no. Look at all the lines. Look how many people you haven't helped yet. There's so many people. But Jesus walks away. And there you are at the front of the line. And he's no longer before you. And you look down and you still have your crippled leg. And then you limp home. And you're wondering, why, Jesus, did you not heal me? And that's the same place that you and I live. In this tension between Jesus' promises of healing, and maybe even you've seen it happen in others, and you wonder, why not me? Why am I waiting so long? Why is it hurting? And you go home alone. And what we need to understand here is that Jesus' life was a preview, maybe better, kick-started that work of him making all things new. His life, particularly his death and resurrection, started, started in motion a process that will lead to the fullness of that new creation. Jesus resurrection body. You want to know what your body will be like when you are resurrected? Just look at Jesus' resurrection body. That was the first prototype coming off the factory line of what a resurrection body looks like. And it means the rest are coming, but we've got to wait longer for it than you've got to wait for your Tesla (laughs) Cybertruck. But it is coming, and its coming is more sure than a Cybertruck. Because sometimes there's a delay, a long delay, between God's words and the fulfillment of them. God's words and God's actions. But there's never any break between them. Everything that God has said will come true. There is no gap between what Jesus has said and what will happen. But we are waiting in that time where God, through us and his church, is going continually going from town to town to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And why? Because he wants everyone to know about it. He wants everyone to know that healing is coming. A world that is bright and beautiful is not far off. 
don't lose hope. And so what should you and I do in that time where we wait? The first thing is to realize that you need Jesus. Right? That everything that you're trying to fix your life, no matter how many eight-second YouTube videos you watch, it cannot heal the darkest and deepest things that you need healed. He is the only one that can do it. His words are the only words that can penetrate down into your heart to fix the things that are broken, to wipe away the sins that stay there, and to give you a new heart with a new desire and a taste for those things that are good. Second, give yourself to God's word right now. We see in our passage that Jesus' words will heal you. They can heal you from your sins, from your diseases, from your demons. And that healing comes kind of in little bits and previews right now, but one day it will come in fullness. And it will be so complete that you have trouble even remembering the struggles you have right now. But those words that will heal you fully are the same words that you have access to right now in God's Word. So spend time in your Bible. Read through the Bible, pick a passage to study, meditate on His words, and discover how His words can even begin to heal you right now. And give yourself to worship. Third, our worship service is centered around God's Word, just like the worship services were that Jesus participated in. God knows that you and I, we need to show up each week to hear His Word, to pray His Word, to sing His Word, to be reminded of that big picture of His kingdom that is coming. Because during the week, when you are knee-deep in diapers or dishes, or TPS reports or mandatory training, you can lose sight of that picture of His kingdom, of that place where God's people are going, of how God will heal everything. You get so stuck in the weeds that that's all you see and you forget where you are headed. And that's why coming to worship is one of the ways that God has given you to dust off that picture, to lift your head up from the mundane and the hard and the struggle and remember that journey that we are on and where we're headed. And then lastly, don't lose hope. See, as a Christian, our hope isn't based on kind of guessing how things are going to turn out based on the circumstances. And, oh man, things are looking downhill, all this bad stuff's happening, how is it going to get fixed? No. Christian hope is knowing that God's reality will break into the darkest of circumstances and upend them to make all things new. God is not hindered by your circumstances. The chances of God winning in the end do not change day to day by, you know, what happens in the news. You see, the world's hope, the best hope that the world has is really just a form of optimism where, where you look at, okay, are things going up? Do we have people in the right places? Are things looking good? Right? But how can you be optimistic when that person who went around preaching the good news of the kingdom from town to town suddenly gets arrested, tried, and is killed on a cross, and lies six feet down in the tomb. And what reasons do you have for optimism there? It looks like it's over. This didn't work out well. Jesus couldn't even heal himself. But Christian hope is a hope not based on what you see lying dead in the tomb, but a hope that is based in God's word and his promises, 
and, he know, and you know that his word will upend death, blast through the tomb, and usher into this world a new and better place. His kingdom is coming. Don't lose that hope. It's a hope that is only on the other side of death. And his words will heal you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to trust in your word more than we trust in your circumstances. To trust in your power more than we feel weak at our own powerlessness. To have that hope that realizes even though maybe everything feels hopeless right now, even though everything in my life is unwinding, even though I don't see any way to get out of this hole I'm in, that, Lord, your word is more powerful than whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Your word blasts through the tomb. It is not ended by death, but it turns death into the beginning of a new resurrection life. So, Lord, help us to head on that journey, even when it leads to hard places, even when it leads to the tomb, to realize that you are there and you've already paved the way for us. And that Jesus will heal us when we put our faith in him. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.